I have to have enough nutrition to fuel myself to, to actually train to get better, but cycling's a weird sport where you've got to stay as light as possible. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got, I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 54 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's torn between fuel and fat. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And a quick review this week, excellent point of views, five stars by DJ Matt from the US. Thanks for keeping us informed. Your podcast is the bomb. Thank you, DJ Map, for going to iTunes and dropping that review. And a reminder, if you like the show, please take some time out and give us a review on iTunes because five stars tickle my fancy. Thank you very much. Now, the news, the tour has wrapped up. Sad face. And also, I am back to reality. But what can I say? What a tour. I do really think it was a fitting tour for the 100th edition of the tour. And first up, congratulations to Froome Dog for living up to the hype and coming away with the win. I can't take anything away from him. His dominant yet fugly as hell style and display of pure class was brilliant to watch, even though I'm still not a full supporter of Froome and I can't decide why but it seems like he's only just getting started and he will continue to at least challenge the top competitors for the next few years at least. I do have to say I liked his speech and his little dig at the dodgy generations stating that his victory will stand the test of time. Chapeau to that and you know what I totally believe him and before I move on Just to talk about a few other elements of the tour, I want to talk about one big takeaway that we can all use. And if you listen to this... This is an amazing feeling, absolutely amazing. I mean, uh, everybody keeps on telling me this is is life-changing, but I mean, I I don't want much to change. I really hope things don't change too much for me. Um, I've I've really enjoyed the challenge this year. Um, Month by month, getting closer and closer to the tour going up to altitude camps, targeting other races to, to be in a similar kind of position to get ready for this year's tour. Um, it, it's really been a, a fun challenge and I've, um, I've enjoyed every part of it. He deflects the reward of winning and moves straight into talking about how rewarding the process is. That is a lesson right there. Learn to enjoy the process, do the work, and you will find reward in that itself. Everything else is a bonus. It sounds like he's staying quite humble and will continue challenging himself as the years move on. Okay, so I want to talk about my MVP of the tour, the most valuable player, and it definitely, for me, goes to Richie Port. And I don't think anyone watching the tour can argue against me because he had an absolute stellar support role for Froome. But coming back day after day, it really seemed like he was having a lot of fun, especially when everyone else was suffering. And it really was highlighted with the cheeky grin, 
there's a picture of him with a cheeky grin while sitting behind Contador suffering on Ansi Semnoz, and it really, for me, says it all. i got to say, what is it with second in charge, though? Because it seems like they've been cruising up mountain passes with less pressure where they can shine bright given most situations because we're talking like Schleck in Sastra's year, Froome last year, and now Richie. It always seems like the guy that's in second may have had the potential to beat first, which is a pretty exciting prospect for Sky because their legacy is strong and it really will continue after Froome and Port have stitched up three- and two-year deals respectively. But how long can Port support Froome for without his own ambition getting in the way? I did read a quote that he doesn't want to go in and try and win the Tour de France. I think his position will change over the next coming years. Definitely on this year's performance, I think Port will be the team leader at Sky at next year's Giro. But how can he sit behind, or in front for that matter, Froome and wait in line? He has openly admitted Froome is harder to support as a leader compared to Sir Bradley, and it feels like Froome will continue to dominate for a few years to come. So Port is older than Froome, and given it's only four months or so, it's enough to get probably get Port thinking about his own path to Tour de France glory. But overall, the next few years are going to be super interesting. A new generation has shown their face. It's already showing they want in. Quintana can only improve his time trial abilities, making him a contender. Talansky is on track and seems hungry for more. And Nibali, we will see him at the Tour next year. And that's a showdown I want to see between him, Froome, Quintana, Rodriguez, everybody thrown in and we have another great race on our hands. My money though is on Port coming off contract in two years, hungry and ready to take on Froome et al. Riding for Orica Green Edge with Simon Clark and Cam Meyer in support. Now, after watching my first two days live ever, I thought a quick account of watching the tour would be pretty fun to discuss. I watched stage 19 on the last hill, which was the Col de la Croix-Free, and it was amazing up until the point it started raining, which was the first bit of rain in the tour. I got to say, I really enjoyed the caravan, the atmosphere. We were sitting in a beautiful, beautiful spot. It was so picturesque. I didn't mind just sitting there hanging out, but then there happened to be a bike race on. The caravan coming through is really fun. People go so mental for small, free bits of crap. It's so amazing to watch old dudes knocking down young kids to get a key ring or a hat or whatever's being thrown out. It's pretty funny. You can't help but get caught up a little bit in it, but really put it in perspective, folks. Anyway. Race itself, I watched just after the small town of Manigod, which actually was just where Rui Costa attacked. So I was able to see the bunch split up, which I think is the best way to watch a bunch because you get to see them one by one versus missing people in the bunch itself, which I did miss some of the big guns because I was focused on other riders. But anyway, the rain started pissing down at that point. So I was a little distracted, and in the end, it probably distracted me from really getting into stage 19 and that climb. And by the way, I had a horrible, horrible motorbike ride home in the rain for over an hour and a half, dodgy conditions. It's all fun of the day, but in the moment, I was absolutely hating it. And the second stage that I watched, stage 20, I watched the stage takeoff from Ansi. So the bus is coming in. I happened to see Team Sky at their hotel, and then the bus is coming in and watching the stage, and then caught a bus to Ansi Semnos, walked up about four or five kilometers and sat on the side of the road. 
again, the atmosphere was so awesome. People lining the road all the way up. It was so exciting just to be there, let alone when the riders came through. And as soon as the riders came in, you just get absolutely caught up in the hype, yelling and screaming. Everyone is going mental, even if they're into cycling or not, which is a super cool thing in my book. And even some larrikins from the Netherlands right next to us, giving the occasional rider a push. Well, one dude is pushing them for over, I would say, 50 metres, which was pretty insane. But everybody at that stage, seeing the riders up close was pretty amazing, not only to realise, yes, they are just guys on bikes, but the actual effort that they're putting in, even if they're not right at the front of the race, just to stay in the time limit is pretty amazing and how worn out they are after three weeks of racing. Overall, I highly recommend going checking it out live. It really is worth it and easy to get caught up in the hype. But if you want to know more information, if you're considering it at any stage, just get in contact at Damien at semiprocycling.com and I'll let you know what I think of your plan. Okay, so the nuts and bolts this week. It's the wrap-up of Nutrition and Performance Month here on Semi-Pro Cycling. And I wanted to go through with some takeaways that I pulled out and trying to put all of the pieces together so it's a little bit more coherent and you get as much value out of the three interviews as possible. So I really hope you've been enjoying the look into Nutrition and Performance. It was a very interesting project for me to undertake and it really has adjusted my thinking on some things, but overall it's more reinforcing than changing my ideas. But I wanted to finish the month and look into how each of the three episodes worth of information can be used together. So first up, we had Joel Collard talking about getting your health right before moving on. Just like when you have to get your body ready to move right before you drop weights on it, getting your internal system functioning correctly is going to help set up your body for better performance once you start loading it up with hard training. So starting at the gut, And using your poo as an indicator of how your gut is dealing with the food that you're putting into your system, if you don't fall into the range of the Bristol stool chart, which is around four or five, then you need to start making some changes. Joel recommends starting by cutting out gluten. And given that gluten-free products and foods are readily available, it's not a hard trial to do. But I would give yourself at least six weeks minimum to start the change process. After that, you could reintroduce different foods one at a time to see what their effect on your system is and whether they're the ones that are actually reducing the absorption that your gut is capable of. Now, the next recommendation was to use higher quality carbohydrates. And this would happen automatically if you have cut gluten from your diet. But her recommendation is things like baby food satchels. But on race day, it's where it really starts to get interesting because the energy foods developed for endurance athletes, such as gels and bars, are a good source of fuel on race day because they're designed to be so jam-packed with exactly what you need. And Joel didn't recommend against the use of any of these items. But the balance is this though. You want to have your gut functioning well leading up to an event, which can allow some leeway in using fuel that may not be the best option every time you train. The tricky part of this is knowing how your body will react. And we all know that you don't use anything untested on race day. So so you have to take a step back and do some meta testing. And by that, I mean testing out either an entire week's lead up and a race day 
or say eating gluten-free at all times except when training and seeing how your body reacts in those situations and whether it still allows your gut to be working at its best. It will take some work, but if you can get your body to use the carbs, proteins, fats, vitamins, and minerals that you put in, you won't be leaking performance or the recovery effect that these foods provide. The next interview, Alan McCubbin, he took us to another place. His review of certain studies led to different outcomes than are out there in common knowledge. And things like hydration and drinking as much as you like or as little as you like has the same effect on performance as drinking lots more. That's super interesting. But also the absorption rate is much higher for carbohydrates if you use glucose and fructose and can lead to around 90 grams of intake, which is 30 to 60 grams higher than what was thought possible even up to 10 years ago. And this increased carbohydrate intake will definitely benefit endurance performance. So the other stuff he was talking about is how he introduced the idea of periodized nutrition or nutrition timing as an important concept that relates directly to performance and training. Adjusting your nutrition based on your training will mean that your needs change over the course of a season. So from base miles to higher level intensity, it's important to plan out what the unique needs of your training sessions require fuel-wise. Alan's biggest takeaway for me was matching your carbs to your workouts, more on a micro level, where if you aren't exercising on a rest day, then just lower your carb intake. Same goes for an LSD ride, for example, or any other ride that you don't need to draw on instant forms of energy to hit certain numbers. This leads us to Matt Fitzgerald because really a lot of this has to do with managing your weight and Matt keeps it super simple, at least compared to the amount of time and effort that you could spend counting calories. But Matt's approach will at least get you started in this direction and you can add more complication as your need to fine-tune your nutrition increases. From Matt, I got food quality is one of the most important things for your overall diet. But one of the most interesting aspects from Matt's approach was his take on managing your appetite. The reason I find it interesting is because of his distinction between belly hunger and head hunger, and not only how this applies to food off the bike, but food on the bike as well, because being able to recognize when your body needs fuel is just as important as eating for the sake of it. So when you're on the edge of hunger and you're about to bonk, it's really easy to recognize. The signs are all there. You're fading quite rapidly, you're shaking, your brain starts thinking about all the great foods you could start eating. But when you're able to keep riding with low fuel sources, you may be dropping some performance and not even notice it or think it's related to some other aspect of your fitness. So this could mean the adaption of your training ride is lower than it could be and you're not getting the best benefit from your fuel and your training that is absolutely possible. And like I spoke about, McCubbin talked about the ability to intake 90 grams of carbs per hour with the right mix of carbs. I think it's important to experiment with your intake even to the point of bonking because at least then you know where the edge is. So if you make notes on how much you eat, when you eat, the types of ride that you're on and you start to play around with it, either you know reducing or changing the food, increasing your intake, getting some carbs from your bittern or all from your food. So the idea here is really just to start experimenting and understanding how your body reacts to the fuel that you put in rather than saying, okay, I'm going to just put this in. I'm just going to have a bar an hour and then that's going to be 
the end of it. It's kind of recognizing what your body is doing and if it is dropping down power because it's a fuel source that it's lacking rather than because you haven't trained your endurance or you're not fit enough. So making those distinctions, I think, will be very clear in the way that you can recognize them during races so that you could just top up on fuel and that could make a really big difference in the output rather than just getting stuck in this mind frame that I'm not fit enough, I don't have what it takes. And this all combines into a kind of holistic feel and understanding of your body rather than blindly eating on the bike and leaking some performance. So my final thoughts on nutrition and performance, I really haven't uncovered anything groundbreaking here. Just solid reinforcement of eating principles that you probably already know. I have been introduced to some great ways to tweak the elements that are important to cyclists. But outside of that, it's really just reinforcement of things that have been out and around in literature and and in bunch talks for a long time. One thing is for sure though, and this is one thing that I wanted to discuss, and you would have noticed that I asked every single person that I interviewed about low-carb diets. And for me right now, they are absolutely wiped off the table as an option. It's super clear to me that any serious cycling training needs to be done with carbohydrates in your system. And it is a clear performance hindrance not to have them there to call on when you need them. So I hope you have enjoyed this month of nutrition and if you have any thoughts on nutrition or any other themes that the show can help you with by looking at a few different angles from a few different people and experts, then definitely get in touch at Damien at semiprocycling.com and I will do my best to get some information that will help you increase your knowledge and get you to ride faster. So the tech hacks and products this week, the 4i heart rate strap. I've mentioned it before. It was a long, long time ago, but it's now out in the market. So I wanted to raise your attention and tell you that you can go and purchase it. I'll put the link in the show notes. The great thing about this strap, if you don't know anything about it, is it takes the signal from Bluetooth smart and Ant Plus sensors combines them and sends them anywhere you like. So so you don't need to worry if you're sending signals to your phone, you don't need to worry if you have an Ant Plus Garmin, for example, it's sending a signal to the heart rate strap, it converts it and then converts that to Bluetooth smart and sends that to your phone. The importance of this may not be so apparent right now, but I'm sure if you purchase any Bluetooth goods or you start fiddling around with more than one sensor or module or anything on your bike, then you're definitely going to understand the importance of this heart rate strap. And I'm definitely looking into getting one in the near future. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Mark the Minx Missile Cavendish. He is one of the favorites of semi-pro cycling because he is such a character. He won two stages in the tour this year, but I'm sure he would not class that as a success. He absolutely has smashed the tour the last few years, and he was beaten on the Champs-Élysées. So, I don't know whether he's going to be happy or not, but the superstar of the tour, Marcel Kittel, you can't be too disappointed because he just dominated. I'm definitely looking forward to the battles between Cavendish and Kittel that will definitely come. And that's it. So, till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cape or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. 
And he starts asking me about my eating habits, you know? Like there's habits, like there's a pattern. It's just chaos and awfulness. It's just desperate constant. He's like, how many meals and how many bowel movements a day? I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea. It's just a blur. I'm just shitting and eating all day. I pill pack my body to capacity and then blow it out my asshole. That's it. Every shit is an emergency. Does that give you some idea? Of my eating habits. And he's trying to get a handle on my, he's like, dude, look, hey, look, well, how, how, how soon into a meal do you typically feel full and stop eating? I'm like, I don't stop eating when I'm full. The meal is not over when I'm full. The meal is over when I hate myself. That's when I, that's when I stop. I guess normal people eat till they're like, oh, that's, I just, that's all the nutrition I require right there. I just reached it. I will cease the intake now and convert this into useful energy throughout the day. No. Every time I eat, it ends with me, why the fuck did I eat that? Dude, get it away. I don't want to look at that shit. That's all. It's all right here, too. It's like... Mm. I got syrup in my veins, like for blood, I got syrup. It's gonna be bad later. Oh.